The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's Psalm 23, which along with Psalm 27 of the Psalms appointed for today, Saturday, September the 17th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the book of Esther. Today we're in chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, and then verses 15 to 23 in the um, gospel today. It's the gospel according to John, chapter twenty or twelve, sorry, verses forty-four to fifty, and then in, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter seventeen, uh, verses sixteen to thirty-four. <clears throat> so that's um, the backdrop for everything that we're going to talk about today. Is is Psalm twenty-three, and it's this this quiet, sure, complete confidence in God. No matter what the situations in our lives might be, and that's what that that psalm is is conveying is is in whatever situation I am, I know God's in control, right? I mean, He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. There's this bucolic sense of uh, perfection, because the, lying down in green pastures suggests that all the in, you're not concerned because there's a good shepherd protecting you from your enemies. The besides still waters, it, it's a place where where's not rushing water so you can you can be peaceful in this he restores my soul leads me in paths of righteousness and then immediately goes from there to even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you're with me your rod and your staff they comfort me you're, you're along beside me I, I feel the the touch of your of your rod and your staff i feel that against my body, and I, and I know that I'm safe in this place. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, who wants to eat in the presence of their enemies? Well, if God's there, then it doesn't matter that they're your enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's the backdrop for everything we should read, actually, not just the, these passages. Esther's an unusual passage uh, book. You don't actually see God appear anywhere in the book and there's a lot of debate and question over who is this person esther who who are the people involved in this situation let's just lay that aside now there was a jew in susa the citadel this is where the the king was remember we're thinking this is xerxes and that he is on his throne in susa which is sushushan um which was the capital of the the empire at that time which is in iran right so so whose name was mordecai the son of jair son of shimei son of kish a benjamite who was carried away from jerusalem among the captives carried away with jeconiah king of judah whom nebuchadnezzar king of babylon had carried away so they've spent a long season of time now up in babylon these these jews mordecai and esther because this is probably they think the date of the book is around the fifth century uh before jesus and the the exile was a long time before that. Uh, so he was he Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the king of the daughter of his uncle, for she had ne- neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and many young women gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Hegai. 
Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge over the women. So why is, why is he collecting these women? Why is the king collecting women? Well, it's because he needs one to replace Queen Vashti, who he has deposed for failing or refusing, actually, to come into his presence when summoned. So when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what he guy, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. In other words, she trusted him because he had experience. He, he knew the preferences of the king. And so she trusted him rather than trusting her own instincts here to, to be the, the right thing to do. And that, that's a model, right, for how we need to trust the Lord. We need to be able to pray, listen, hear him. And even when he says something that goes against what we think we should be doing, we, we need to do whatever we, we are certain that we heard him say. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he had set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. And what this is saying is is that he delighted in her so much that that he decided to forego the tax revenue that would come from the the provinces. And he, he was over 127 provinces. So... He decided to forego that for a period of time because he so delighted in Queen Esther, and so did all the other people. So when the virgins gathered together the second time, Mordecai was at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. He told her not to let them know she was a Jew because then that makes her an outsider. And it's the issue that Paul is facing in a couple of different places that we've seen, like Thessalonica and Lystra, where he's, and ultimately next will be in Ephesus. And it's exposing this idea that, that these people are seditionists at some level because they don't recognize your kingship. They don't recognize the laws of the land. They follow the laws of their own God. So that's the reason Mordecai would not have wanted her to disclose her heritage. They've been in Babylon long enough. They've been up in this area so long that now they've more or less assimilated into Babylonian society. And so she, if you're not completely assimilated, then you're a threat to the king because you recognize some other greater power. So that's why Mordecai would have said, don't tell him about this. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So in other words, even though she was a grown-up now, she didn't. She continued to listen to the advice of Mordecai. That's, that's one of the things that, that um, characterizes Esther here in the early part of the book is is that that she will depend on Hegai and she'll depend on on Mordecai. Ultimately, she transfers that same idea, that same willingness to obey no matter what to the Lord. But here in the beginning, she's obeying Mordecai. She obeyed Hegai. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigton and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on a king Ahasuerus. So they're, they're the people closest to the king. So it, you don't cross that threshold until you get past these two eunuchs. 
And so they, they, they represent a great danger to the king because they are closest to him. They don't have to pass through anybody. In the same way that Nehemiah was important to King Darius because he was the cupbearer to the king, which means he had to trust him with his life, literally, that he wasn't going to poison him or allow somebody else to do it. So it, it, these are important jobs, and you don't want the guys closest to the threshold to, to turn against you. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. In other words, she used his name to tell this. Hey, hey, my, you know, this guy Mordecai told me this. <clears throat> so when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So it's important to know both those things, right? Because to hang them on the gallows is sort of pre, uh, presages what's going to happen at the end of this thing when, when Haman orders gallows to be built uh, to, to hang Mordecai. So those gallows are present here in this. And then also this thing, we're told that it was recorded in the Chronicles of the King. So later, this is going to come up again. So just so you'll know, but both those two little pieces of information have value in the future. In the gospel today, Jesus cries out, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. So it's, it's odd because Philip is going to ask later, Father, show us the Father. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus has already said, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. So when Philip says, show us the Father, it had to be, you know, one of those like facepalm kind of things for Jesus. Are you serious? You're, you're behaving like them. Your faith is as weak as theirs. What's wrong with you? Because he says, whatever, whoever believes in me believes in the one who sent me. He says, because I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. And so whatever I do reveals not just who I am, but it also reveals the identity of the one who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, which is recapitulation of John 3.16. So the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on that day. You're going to be judged based on what you knew, based on the information you had, the evidence you had. You'll be judged based on what you did with that evidence. For I've not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. You know, all he's saying here is, is that he's recapitulating, as I said, John 3.16, that, that he came into the world to save the world, that through the world, through him, the world might be saved. And, and so Jesus says that, that just believe, you know, that's what I need you to do. I need you to believe. The most important thing you can do is believe in me and do the things that I tell you to do, because that then shows that you believe in the Father. And so obedience, belief and obedience are, are continually linked in here. And for whatever reason, we, we seem to have lost that in certain parts of the church, the idea that, that actually belief uh, has to be accompanied by action, believing isn't enough. He says, the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my words. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I don't judge them. I mean, it's a matter of keeping these words. It's, it's not just, it's not enough just to treasure and ponder these things in your heart. 
No, you've got to take action, and that action is a life lived according to the commandments of Jesus. And, and can you see that if, if, we, if, if, if even most of the world accept him as a, as a great moral teacher, then, all right, what would it look like if there were people who actually lived out the moral teachings of Jesus in the way he commanded us to do them? Because he raises the bar on all those sins, right? I mean, don't commit adultery becomes don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. Don't murder becomes don't hate. Love um, your neighbor means don't have enemies. Love everybody, no matter who they are or what they do. And, and it's important that we as Christians live that out, because if we lived it out, then the world wouldn't be able to object in the way that Gandhi is said to have objected, which is, is that I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians, they're not very much like your Christ. Well... Let's take that club out of their hands. If you accept him as a great moral teacher, then here's what it looks like when people live according to the moral teachings of Jesus. But, but they also deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow him. We don't, we, we don't count our lives as a value in any way other than what are we doing for the kingdom? That, that we actually have the mindset, the kingdom mindset that Jesus had, that Paul had. What would it look like? If the church really did have one goal, and that is to share the gospel and to bring the kingdom to bear in all situations. So now Paul, remember, has moved on from Thessalonica and Berea, and he's gone down, and and he went um, without Silas, but but then he called for them to join him there. And so Luke must have stayed with Paul while he was down in Athens. So while he was waiting for them, that's Silas, um, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul, his kingdom mindset carried over into the way he felt about these, quote, pagans and the the idols that are all over the city. He recognizes that, that those idols are demonic, that they oppose the living God. And so they, they, they are claiming people for themselves, which is different from what Jesus did. Because he said, all I have are the, or what the Father gave me. So even though he is equal with God, he laid that aside in his earthly life in order to serve the Father. So Paul's upset here. He was provoked within him because of these idols. And, and, and the reason is he, he felt pity for the people who worshiped those idols because they were worshiping false gods and they were being led straight into hell. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So the Jews and the devout persons, those are this is in the synagogue. He's arguing with them. He reasoned with them as a better way to say it. So exactly what Luke said. But he reasons with them in the synagogue, those who show up in the synagogue, but he was also in the marketplace every day with whoever happened to be there. So it's not Jews and devout persons, it's whoever. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, and they took him and brought him up to the Areopagus, which is a place where, where you would have debate. And they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And remember, that's, that was the important question that we've seen asked multiple times. What does this mean? 
And that's the question we should always be asking when we see something happen. What does this mean? What, what is the purpose of this? What is it revealing to us? Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Imagine that. An entire culture obsessed with novelty of thought. Can we begin to imagine that? I mean, it's, it's how we live right now. I mean, being fat and happy and prosperous allows a society to forget what's truly important and focus on silliness. I mean, abject silliness and, and allow its people to, to be so disconnected from actual life that they begin to question, I don't even know what a woman is. I mean, what is wrong with us that we would ever get into a place where we would do that? Well, that's exactly what's going on in Athens at the time. There's just philosophical speculation. And, and the, the problem, Stephen Hawking nailed the problem with current modern philosophy, and that is it's completely divorced from reality. It has nothing to say to the world. And you get guys, guys like David Berlinsky, who, who, who are, con, quote, conservative philosophers, who said that's exactly right. Philosophy is basically today reduced to how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. It has nothing to say about life itself. It's just devolved into this speculative nonsense about what if things were different. Well, then I can imagine pretty much anything. But there's a level at which things just are. (laughs) And we have to accept the reality of what is, in order to successfully navigate life. Or we can deal with all these novelties all the time. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he's responding to their question. What, what is this new teaching? What does this mean? And, and, it's, and that's the point, is, is that, that when we present the gospel to someone, we have to explain to them what it means. It means salvation. It means, means eternal life. It means a new life. It means a different way of looking at things. So Paul stands and says, Men of Athens, I perceive that you're in every way, you're very religious. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means they do religious things. It means they practice religion, which is different from allowing the Spirit to live through you. So the practice, Paul says, look, hey, I see you're really religious people. You really love gods because they're everywhere. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, which is to say, hey, we don't believe that, that we have it all together. We're willing to listen to evidence for any other God as well. We, we're pretty sure that we can't know what is unknowable So we'll just leave it open. Okay, as many gods as we have, well, there's still room for one more. So Paul says, I see this altar with that inscription, and what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it. Pretty big claim. (laughs) Pretty big claim. In fact, he usurps the place of some of their gods when he says that thing is, oh, wait a minute. So that's going to take out Zeus. It's going to take out, you know, all these others. Being Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, these gods that you're talking about, these little territorial gods who, who have their places where you can go and worship them, mm-hmm, yeah, well, guess what? They're not actually gods if there is a God who created all things and who is the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, these things are, are, are not even demigods. They, they're, they're something that are subservient to him, ultimately. He doesn't live, Paul says, in temples made by man. 
And, and that would be a perfectly Jewish belief. That's not where God lived. It was his footstool. <clears throat> the God, so, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And all that's doing is Paul taking Psalm 50 seriously, and these are the verses 8 through um, 11. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. In other words, you're, you're doing plenty of sacrifice. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. He said, I don't need you to do anything for me. I don't need anything. I'm perfectly self-sufficient. And that's a key concept of Judaism, and it's a key concept of Christianity as well. And so he said, look, he's not that kind of God. He's not the kind of God you're talking about. He doesn't need us. He created us, but not because he had a need. So he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So all men belong to him from one man, Adam, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. He says, no accident. You are when you are and where you are. And God intended you to be where you are and when you are. So so don't say, I should have been born in a different era. No, bloom where you're planted because God's the one who planted you there that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for these are quotes from their philosophers. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So let's accept that as true. We are, in fact, Paul says, being then God's offspring. So he, he affirms what their poet said. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If he created us, if we are his children, then we certainly can't recreate him in this way. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now that his son has come, God's not overlooking this anymore, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So ultimately his appeal is to the resurrection, and the resurrection points to the man. And so he can glorify Jesus because the Father resurrected him. So we have proof that Jesus is the man. <laughs> and, and he's appealing to sort of Revelation 5, where the lamb looking like it was slain appears before the throne and takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne. So Paul says, there's a guy, there, there's a man, which is bizarre beyond belief to think about salvation being in a man. But we know it's true because he's the only man who's been resurrected from the dead or even claimed to be. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Nope, that's all. this is all there is. There ain't no more. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, so Luke had to have been there because he, he names these people and says, Here, here's exactly the way Paul preached and, and the way he reasoned, and then here was the result. And here, I'm going to give you a couple of names. It, we just need to trust the Lord. I mean, that, that's what everything comes down to. Do, who do I trust? Who do I believe? And who do I obey? There's the critical word right there, obey. <laughs>